from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the comic book interviews. Well, comic book aficionados, today's interview puts Steve Ditko in the spotlight. Steve Ditko is known for his work at Marvel, which includes Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Machine Man, and Captain Universe at DC, The Creeper, and at Charlton Comics, The Question, and Captain Adam, just to name a few of the heroes that he drew and co-created, plus his own creation, Mr. A. To speak with me about Ditko is David Curry. He is the writer of Ditko Shrugged, the uncompromising life of the artist-creator behind Spider-Man and the rise of Marvel Comics, being published through Hermes Press this November. Ditko Shrugged is the first in-depth biography of comics legend Steve Ditko endorsed by the Ditko family, illustrated with numerous examples of the artist's original artwork and correspondence with the author. Steve Ditko, in his own words, taken from years of correspondence with the author David Curry and endorsed by Ditko family with a forward by Mark S. Ditko. In addition, the book Ditko Shrugged includes the stories of other artists from the same period, from Jack Kirby to Wally Wood, and how they fell afoul of a system stacked against them. Author David Curry also has another book in the works about a favorite performer of mine, David documented on tour in the 80s. It will also be published through Hermes Press next year. But first we talk about Steve Ditko. Please join me in welcoming David Curry, author of Ditko Shrugged, The Uncompromising Life of the Artist. Here now on Creator Talks. David, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. You're welcome. When did you first experience Steve Ditko's work? That would have been around 1966, 67. In England, during those times, we used to get the American copies of comics. That's pretty much maybe about two or three months as they came out in America. But the distribution was sporadic, so I was only able to pick up a few of them. The first one I actually read was Steve Ditko's number 33, Oh, that's a very good one to start with. <laughs> yeah, it's the end of all that master planner saga. So I came in really at the zenith of what uh, the artist was doing on the title. And then a bit later in the 60s, around 67, 68, they started reprinting all the Spider-Man comics and Fantastic Four and Hulk in black and white weekly comics. So then I was able to read them sequentially rather than just the odd title, the odd issue they I may have picked up here or there. Well, it was difficult back in the 60s because with newsstand distribution, you didn't always get the next issue. Uh, it was very sporadic, and I didn't buy them back then. My first experience with Steve Ditko's work was in Marvel Tales number 25, which had a reprint of Spider-Man number 32. Issue just before, yeah. Yes, yes. That's the issue that ended with him under the machinery, yeah. Right. Then you couldn't find the second issue. I was very young when I received that issue, and it was actually given to me, and it was read to me. So I didn't pick up on it until much later, but I thought, wow, this is really cool. This is a really serious and tragic story. <laughs> pretty incredible. It was not what I expected at all. That's pretty much the effect, wasn't it, of that material um, during that time? It's hard to read it in retrospect for generations that have grown up since and appreciate the true value of it, apart from his historical value. And did you continue to read Spider-Man after that in the black and white copies? Yeah, and in the American ones. And then in the 70s, distribution became a little better. You could sort of sidestep between the two, the reprints and the originals. 
Now, did you follow Steve's other work with Charlton Comics and later with DC and Marvel? Some of it, not all of it. Charlton Comics were very hard to find. And they came over in the same numbers as Marvel and DC. Uh, I did find some, but um, it was hard to follow anything in, with such irregular distribution. Um, so really it was Marvel to begin with and all the pre-hero haunted house stories and science fiction fantasy tales that he did with Lee. They were reprinted probably before um, the superhero stuff. I guess that would have been my first proper exposure to Steve's art. The work that he did back when Marvel was Atlas, one of the things I found out was that Stan would write these stories and say to Jack Kirby or to Steve Ditko, make up the monster. It was up to them how the monster looked. He would just say, there's a monster, its name is this, or there's an alien, its name is this. Make it mm. up. I think it wasn't just the monster. I think it was probably a good 70 or 80% of the plot and where the monster would be running around in. So, yeah, those artists at the time, especially Kirby and Ditko, they did author a lot of the stories as well as crank the artwork. Yeah, that we can tell not only from stories that we've heard, but from the artwork itself. From original pages, you can see the story in the margins as Jack or Steve was blotting it out and writing it. But in terms of the monsters, I bring up that point because Kirby had his way of doing monsters. Steve had his way. All a little different because it was coming from their mind. It wasn't dictated to them. This is how it should look. So you really got from both of them their input, their impression of how the story should take place, how it should be narrated. Well, standard the narration, but again, how it would be plotted, how it would be paced. Yeah, they had a lot of work, didn't they? They had to draw it, they had to plot it, they had to be the set designers, be the creature designers, and also do that every day for every week, every month. And it wasn't a glamorous job. I mean, back then, comic book creators, writers, artists, they didn't really talk about it. Some used pen names. You know, they wanted to be like Stan wanted to be the great author, you know, write the next great novel. Even within their own fraternity to some degree, it wouldn't have been anything they would be boasting about unless they were on a best-selling title. That would mean regular work. Now, you had a long correspondence with Steve Ditko. When did that first start? It started around, I think, 2005, 2006. Uh, it started around that time, um, and then it continued. I wrote to him originally because I wanted to ask if he could lend me some art for a, an exhibition of art that I was doing in uh, the, the town where I live called Bath for the Victoria Art Gallery. I was curating an art exhibition of comic book art from the 20th century, and that's how I started to write to him. Who was included in an exhibition? What art did you have? Uh, at the time, um, pretty much everyone you can think of, contemporary and from the historical period, like the Kirbys and the Reed Crandalls and the Wally Woods, through to the McFarlane's of the day. And what was Steve's reaction? Uh, he wasn't interested in the slightest. He thought that the art that he produced, and I guess that meant all comic art, had no place on a gallery wall. He said it wasn't made for that purpose. I know he was very possessive of his art because back in the 60s, he would contribute to fanzies if he was asked, but he wanted his art back if it wasn't going to be used. It was supposed to be hot and fresh, get it out as soon as possible, don't sit on that for a couple of years. If you're not going to be able to publish this in your fanzine, send it back to me. He was very adamant about that. Well, he was also used to not getting his art back at all, not from Charlton, but from Marvel and DC until the changes came in the 70s when they started to return up for a myriad of different reasons. Uh, but even then, he still didn't get his art back as such. He got a lot of it back, but um, he got very little Spider-Man art back. He had just under three issues, no covers, including the two annuals. So you can understand probably why he was keen, if he had any power with a fanzine, to say, could you send the art back to me, that he was keen to do so. 
And you had to always ask him permission to use his art. You couldn't just take it and use it. He expected you to ask permission. Or come to an agreement prior to that that the art could be used. This is why there was a collected edition of Wit's End that came out a few years ago. And he allowed the Mr. A stories to be reused because if he didn't, it would have shattered his original agreement with Wally Wood. Now, since he didn't want to share any artwork for the exhibit, how did the correspondence continue? What did you talk about next? So first response was quite terse. And then I asked for an interview. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that he didn't give interviews, but mm -hmm. I thought I'll ask him. And um, he came back with a bunch of questions. And my amused answers to those questions sparked off a correspondence that turned into a pen friendship. We corresponded for that period of time. How often did you correspond back and forth? Would be every month or every month and a half from the nearly 10-year period. He wrote a lot of letters. He had a lot of correspondence. So the fact that he was writing regular letters is not in itself unusual because he had hundreds of correspondence all over the world because correspondence was his main form of communication. He didn't do computers. So it was an old-fashioned way of connecting with people. Well, that makes it pretty special because you don't see much of that anymore. So to have something in his handwriting. Exactly. But it's also special because it denotes a certain period in history where people used to write letters very often. Maybe in the current situation, people are beginning to possibly pick that up again. It's a traditional way of communicating, separated by an ocean. So that helps with a feeling that we had each other's confidence. Given that some of his letters could be rather terse, were you nervous about writing to him or did you spend a lot of time thinking about how you would phrase things and how you would ask your questions of Steve because he was pretty specific and exacting about how language was used in correspondence and would pick things apart yes I had to think very hard how I would reply and put a lot of thought into the replies that I gave him but I also told him that I was intending to write a book on himself and 20th century comic book creators. I wasn't trying to get in in the back door or anything or get his defenses down. It, it was a relationship that developed quite naturally. Okay, so he knew it was going to be used for that purpose at some point, and he didn't have any problem with that because you were upfront about it. Yeah, I told him that that was my intention one day to write a book on how I saw his involvement in comic book history and also about to tell that story of comic book history from the 20th century, which was a story that was quite dear to me and which I wanted to tell and give my take on it. What did he share about his history with comics, his place in it, the work that he did? How much of that did he get into? Very deeply, in depth, most subjects you could think of. So he did correspond with you about Spider-Man? Oh, yeah. Lots of information about Spider-Man because there were things that um, he wanted to share. There were things that I wanted to know. So, yes, surprisingly, he was very open in talking about Spider-Man. It was a small part of a long letter. Um, Steve would write long letters they would be five, six, seven pages, all very neatly handwritten in pencil and using the paper to its fullest extent so there's not many blank spaces. So we covered a lot of material. The talk and the conversations about Spider-Man and Marvel and all those other things were part of a wider conversation. When he referred to Spider-Man in his letters, and I've seen this, he just writes S-M. He didn't even spell it out. Did he do the same with you? It varied. Sometimes he spelled it out. Sometimes he put S-M. Sometimes he abbreviated. He liked to abbreviate things a lot. He loved the phrase, etc. I didn't know if it was something that he didn't want to speak about, because I know there were some hard feelings oh, no. there when he left. He would have been writing it for abbreviation and for brevity than any other feeling. Did he mainly write to you about his work on it or about the people he worked with? Because he didn't often say a whole lot about others in his correspondence. About the characters, the times, uh, the people, and the circumstances that um, may be relevant to whatever we were talking about, really. 
So, yes, I found him a very open person. See, there's the Steve Ditko that people knew, and there's the Steve Ditko that people wrote to, and there's Ditko that people believe is this kind of person or this kind of person. And there's probably elements of truth to all of them. But I didn't certainly didn't find him to be a very guarded person. In some ways he was, but um, in other ways he was happy to talk. And what kind of things did you ask them that he opened up more about? Lots of different areas of what happened to him during his career, how he started his career, to the problems he found uh, in the course of his career, and the delight that he found in self-publishing his own material, which he'd done for the last quarter decade with Robin Snyder. That gave him a lot of pleasure. He hadn't really had lots of good words to say about a lot of the corporate big two in America. The only company, comic company that he said that he enjoyed working for was Charlton. Yes, he considered that mainly just work for hire and really cared more about his own creative work, his own like Mr. A and that type of thing was really was near and dear to him. Mm. He was a very um, principled person and the ways that he felt that he concocted to deal with life at an early age he carried through his entire life. Now, he left Marvel to go back to Charlton or begin with Charlton after he left Spider-Man. Not on good terms. I, mean, I don't think he was too happy about that, but he was just, I guess, frustrated and fed up that the character was going in a direction that he didn't want to see the character to go. And he has his objectivism philosophy, and he did not particularly like heroes with feet of clay. He wanted them to be moral, upstanding, righteous individuals. Mm. He was one of those first-generation comic book readers in the Second World War. So he would have read the stories that he read uh, and the characters that he liked then, characters like Batman and Spirit, and they were pretty much in that black-and-white heroic vein. So a lot of it was how he perceived the world through philosophy that he read and adhered to or agreed with. And part of it was deeper rooted because of the heroes that he read growing up during that time of conflict. What did he say about how comics had changed since the comic code and going forward? Like you said, he grew up reading the more black and white, good versus evil. Did he express any opinions about how comics were changing? Well, I think his initial problems with comics stemmed in the 60s when uh, he was used to doing five or six or eight pages. And in one issue of any particular title, he may have done four or five different stories, which he enjoyed doing rather than a whole comic of Spider-Man or a whole comic of Avengers. It was the time when the comics had more to offer in terms of ideas and creativity than one note through the whole 21 pages or whatever it is. And even though the industry really went that way big time in the late 60s, early 70s, I think he was always hankering over those days where he felt that there was more ideas explored in each individual issue because of the variation of characters and the variation of stories. As far as modern comics go, he wasn't, he was quite blistered and dismissive of them. I guess going through the 90s, it must have been pretty hard for him because comics were just so different at that point. Well, I think he saw a lot of change and I think he saw a lot of change in the conditions, There's a lot of change in the companies, a lot of change in material that he was called upon to create. And he saw an industry that went in a direction where it stifled that rather than encouraged it, as he saw it. Which is why he felt freedom in the self-publishing and that he wouldn't have had it in any mainstream or even sidestream publishing house. That he really did for himself. He didn't really care what people's opinions were of his self-published work. He did it for him. Oh, no, he didn't care. And they were all small print runs, so he didn't care that his audience wasn't huge or wasn't massive or wasn't paying $100 for its autograph, or wasn't um, fulfilling any function other than him producing. 
He wasn't really into fandom as a collective. Uh, fans' opinions or their reviews or assessment of his work really didn't matter to him at all. No, it didn't. That's quite a nice, free way of thinking for any artistic person, and it's very rare, I think. Um, but yes, yeah, that's exactly, you described that quite well. Now, he left Marvel, but he came back late 70s when Shooter was the EIC, Jim Shooter, and he worked on books like Machine Man, took over after Kirby, Micronauts, and I remember Captain Universe. Did he mention any of that in his writings? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he went through the whole how he got invited back and uh, his conditions for what he would do and what he wouldn't do. Some of them very well known. He wouldn't draw Spider-Man. He wouldn't draw Doctor Strange. But there were other things that he refused to do that uh, still were against his principles. You remember that time when Tony Stark was an alcoholic? Uh, would he refuse to draw a picture where Tony Stark was in his Iron Man armor drunk? Because he said a hero wouldn't act that way. I spoke to David Michelini, who helped write that period. And that storyline did a lot of good to open up a lot of discussion about such things. It was one of those things where Steve wouldn't draw what he didn't believe in. And when he did draw during that period, I found, since I was reading comics at that time, I was buying them myself at that point. I was at the golden years of my comic collecting when I was younger. He sketched a lot of his artwork. He kind of thumbnailed it. He wasn't as detailed as he was when he drew Spider-Man or when he did work for Charlton back in the 60s. It's just he would just sketch it, thumbnail it, and usually somebody else would ink it. He didn't want to put that much effort into it. Mm. He did a lot of layouts. He also did full pencils as well. He wasn't employed to do full pencils and then provided pencil breakdowns. Whatever the job he accepted would be either to do the pencils or to do uh, the breakdowns. So I don't think he was like holding back, oh, I'm not going to put as much effort into this one because it's Marvel. I, I don't think that was the case. Uh, I think it was probably down to publishing scheduling according to what he was doing and what he wasn't doing. Oh, I see. So the production, with having someone else ink it, it could be done quicker. But Shooter was all about getting the books out on time. There was no fill-ins. He was eliminating that, the back stock that they had, off the shelf, gone. Yeah, yeah. But as I say, he would also have other conditions. He wouldn't draw anything to do with the Spider-Man world. He would draw J. Jonah Jameson's bugle. He just didn't want to return to any of those worlds that he had mixed feelings about. Well, because he was drawing that way, and that was what they agreed to, I think a lot of fans at that time did not appreciate his work. If he wasn't getting rave reviews, or he wasn't getting people buying the issues in droves. Same for Kirby, wasn't yes. it? Yes, yes it was. Suddenly a lot changed in comics in the 70s, in the art, and also in the way the writers were expressing themselves, telling their own stories through the comic books, which really didn't happen much before the early 70s. And people like Kirby and Ditko, even if they put 100% effort into things, which Kirby especially was, they wouldn't necessarily be get the same accolades. Times have moved on and their styles were reminiscent of an age that was too young. comic book readers of the day was gone. They were looking for their own age and their own uh, heroes. So part of it is time passing. And how did he feel about that or how did he express that in his writing? Because it must have been frustrating that he and other veterans of the industry were being passed by for the latest rising star well they weren't passed by as such they were kept in employment in a lot of ways and uh, sometimes the opportunities were there and sometimes they weren't there how did he react i think he just didn't really give it that much thought as long as he was producing as long as he was creating um, he was fulfilling his own personal needs well, he did move on from Marvel when Shooter was ousted as editor-in-chief. He went to Valiant and did some work for them on Solar, Magnus, XO, and I remember that very well because I collected all those. 
And he must have had a good working relationship there because there were a lot of veterans that were working at Valiant who didn't get as much work as they were getting in the past from the big two. They wound up there to help get that company started. Yeah, a lot of people have got very fond memories of Valiant. But like to Steve, it would have been a job like any other job, whether it was Valiant or Marvel or Atlas or DC. It's a vocation, isn't it? And it was a vocation that was in and of itself in those days. Maybe today is different because people consider comic books as a possibly a springboard to other careers but then you were a comic book artist so you draw comic books and even after valiant did some work for defiant comics just uh, the dark dominion zero issue it was a trading card wasn't it it was an album yeah so not an actual comics it was a comic in and laid out over trading cards that's right that's kind of unfortunate because that's a tough way to put together a comic i think it might have been reprinted in normal comic format at some point i don't know but yeah but that was that time there's gimmicks here gimmicks there let's do it this way let's put this holofoil on let's have a hologram that's when the variants started and that's when you know they were trying to find different ways to package comic books which i guess we're at now really yes we're back there again aren't we there again. <laughs> i found that particular book that he did interesting because it seemed to remind me more of some of his Strange Tales work, some of his sci-fi, and especially Doctor Strange. Yeah. it's um, There's Doctor Strange, of course. Um, we haven't spoken about that. But again, that was very um, seminal work for the time, which didn't necessarily help to uh, promote the Marvel house style, but was distinct and unique enough to live on for its own merits. Oh, it's definitely some of my favorite work of his. And people thought at the time, oh, this has some reference to psychedelic drugs. And it had nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's just the way Steve drew it. <laughs> well, I mean, it was the 60s. Everything through Marvel was presented and delivered. The delivery system was Lee's narratives and his uh, way of talking and his way of engaging the audience. That's why I, I felt it was important for the material in the letters to be published, because it's just a conversation starting on balancing the kudos from that period of time, without wishing to take away any credit from anyone, but possibly to add some credit to some people like Kirby and Ditko that really were part of a whole group of comic book artists that had similar experiences. What did he tell you about his own character, Mr. A?, in his correspondence he told me it would never go over as a movie and i think he's quite right in that respect that it probably never would possibly an animation but he saw the way that the characters from that period were taken up by hollywood sold to a bit even bigger audience by using this very similar techniques to the way they sold the marvel universe by i'll buy this book because you might miss out on this story da, 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 and this one goes here and this connects to that um they use the same techniques to market the movies so it still works now so what was the last correspondence that you had with steve because he passed away late june of 2018 he's 90 years old when was the last time you had a chance to write to him and he responded um i think it was late 2017 that kind of time and what was that last correspondence about? I'd have to dig that particular one up to read it to give you a, an interesting answer. Uh, anything really that was relevant, I've included in the book and used it in context of um, the period or whatever I'm writing about at that particular time. Was there one particular correspondence you had with Steve that really stands out in your mind, one that rises above the rest for you? Uh, yeah, there was. Um, there was a time when uh, he was extraordinarily supportive and sympathetic about a certain situation I was going through at the time and responded with poems and fables and writings that were uh, meant to encourage the soul. That was an important letter. And another important letter later is where he defines himself as the moral creator of Spider-Man. It's all in the book. Well, let's talk about the book. It was endorsed by the Ditko family. 
Did you correspond with them before you decided to publish and go back and forth a bit about it? I contacted um, Mark Ditko, who is the nephew of Steve, um, and between him and Patrick, Steve Ditko's brother, they looked over my manuscript and added areas which were wrong or erroneous or this didn't happen, but this did. Um, and they were an invaluable source to making sure that the book is as true as it can be. And how do you break down the book in terms of chapters? I start with one. <laughs> I start, no, hang on. I start with a prelude or is the forward. It could be an introduction. But then um, I break it really down into six chapters. And it starts off introducing who Steve Ditko is and his circumstances just in the years leading up to his death. And then it goes back to tell the whole story of 20th century comic books. And it also touches on many other people's tales from that period. So the Siegel and Schuster tale, the uh, Jack Kirby tale, the Wally Wood tale. And I interviewed nearly 30 other creators for the book as well. So it's a book which is about Steve Ditko primarily, but he's used as a narrative figure to weave this story of this particular part of American history and um, comic book history. For those who haven't read any books about Steve Ditko, because there have been others written, and some about his correspondence, how is yours distinct from those other books? What's special about your book? What's special about it? I don't think I'm probably the one to tell you what I think is special about the book. I think the fact that Steve shared a lot of information that um, I'm now sharing with the world is the special part. And the fact that um, his story has been told in a, in a way that um, proved to be true. It's got lots of pictures in it. It's something which I hope will, as I said before, just be a conversation starter about the history of comic books and the credit that's attributed where. How does it add to the knowledge of what we know about Steve Ditko, about him as a person? Mm, I think you'd have to read the book to be able to answer that. How does that add to the person? Steve was a very private person, and he will always remain that way. And therein lies a lot of the tale, with the way he reacted to the circumstances of his life and what he did with his life. I've tried to put a tapestry together that you can read and maybe come away with it with a deeper understanding rather than the myths that have been perpetuated over the years about this, that, or the other. And I hope that people will come away with it actually feeling that it does that, but it also doesn't really upset any other apple carts uh, in the sense that it's not taken aside for the detriment of another person. It's just trying to tell a story and balance a tale. And this is being published through Hermes Press? Hermes Press. I believe it's in shops in November. And what was their reaction when you pitched the book to them? Well, they were happy. They went with it on a proviso, actually without reading the manuscript, because I hadn't read it at that time. I was, this is what I intend to do. So they, they took a chance. I believe they're very happy with it. But you probably need to ask them. Is this the first book that you've written? It's the first book I've written on comic books. And it's the first book I've written in many a while, to be honest. I used to write a couple of books on David Bowie in the 1980s. And I'm about to write another one. But that's another story. Well, it's funny you should mention that because listeners of the show know I'm a huge David Bowie fan. I've seen him several times in concert. I'm actually writing a book for Hermes Press uh, called The Grand Illusion of David Bowie because during the 80s I kind of managed his fan club and did many other things around his world. And I did many tours, not with Bowie, but uh, when he was touring. So I got lots of photographs and I had lots of photographs that I took during the time and lots of memories. So I'm compiling all that together in the book for Hermes Press, which is due out next year. Which tours were you on? 
Cirrus Moonlight and Glass Spider and Tim Machine. I went to Glass Spider. I went to that in Philadelphia at Veteran Stadium, which is no longer there. And uh, Squeeze opened up. And then I saw him in Philadelphia when he was with Tim Machine. Or was Tim Machine with the Hunt Brothers. Was that the first one or the second one? Did he have the beard then? That was the second one. The second album had come out. Great. I sold one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw him there. I saw him in the 90s tour with Sound and Vision. And then his reality tour. Good, you saw the reality tour. Oh, an outside tour too, with Nine Inch Nails. I saw that one also. It was a great loss. And going back to Ditko and Lee and all the others and Kirby, a great loss to the comic book world. Well, I'm glad you're documenting a lot of this for us, uh, for people who did not experience or have any firsthand experience either seeing Bowie or writing to Ditko or speaking with Stanley and any of those greats, so people have a better understanding of who they were and how they thought. Without you, it would just be people's imagination. Because before I got into reading about these writers and artists, I had no idea. When I was younger, I would just read the book. I would see the credits, and they'd have nicknames like Smiling Stan Lee, Jazzy John Ramita, and I'd read the items and the letter pages, and it was all very cheery and wonderful, but things weren't always that way. You mean like the bullpen of uh, the friendly, zany buddies creating all this mythology for only for five cents. Five P actually. Five cents. The comic books have never been five cents. <laughs> <laughs> only in alternate reality. Did Steve mention any time that he spent uh, with a bullpen? I know probably just worked from a studio at home. He was never a member other than an absent member. He had a studio in New York, so he would have just taken his work in you know, each week uh, and delivered it to Sal Brodsky, the production editor. He wouldn't have been one of the members that were actually at the board there in the bullpen. There weren't really many, if I recall. Like Kirby eventually moved to California, so he wasn't even in the office. He was working out of his basement. In the early days, they used to be um, in there for lots of meetings with Lee, but they became less as um, things progressed. But uh, he was kind of a member, possibly more than Ditko in the sense that he was physically there more. Who was Steve Ditko to you? Who was he to me? It's Myriad. He's the guy that created my favorite Marvel character, or co-created. And he's the guy that introduced me to New York, because when I was five-year-old, that's the first version of the city I ever saw, was his canyons and shadowy alleyways of New York. And he was also the character of many other things that I enjoyed, including The Creeper and all that great stuff he did for the Warren magazines, the black and white work that he did. Uh, but he was also a friend in the sense that he was a pen pal in the grandest of traditions, separated by an ocean and exchanging news and views. And I used to look forward to his letters. He was many things to me, Steve Ditko, but mainly he was um, he was a fantastic, bordering on genius comic book artist. But his art also um, transcends that because uh, it has an individuality of its own. During the time when Marvel was first experience in their great success in the early 60s or beginning to a lot of people in the office were told to draw like Kirby but that would never have been said to Steve Ditko. That's interesting because a lot of people did follow that lead and draw like Kirby even Busima looked a bit like Kirby in the beginning mm. and Barry Windsor Smith too but you don't see anyone that ever looked like Steve Ditko's artwork. No because there's something that's quite strangely unique about the way he draws faces and hands and sets the scene out that it's hard to emulate, because if you did, you're obviously emulating it. 
Yeah, that's a, it is one of those strangeness, isn't it, that people can draw like Kirby, but it's very hard to draw like Ditko and pull off something that isn't just a poor imitation. With Kirby, somehow you can take the, the form and create something relatively new out of it. Barry Smith obviously did. He was very much a Kirby clone, wasn't he, in the early days when he was Barry Smith and then became Barry Windsor Smith and uh, became uh, almost a fine artist in terms of his influences uh, were more outside of the field of comic book rather than within. Spider-Man is your favorite character that Steve Ditko worked on? Oh, yeah. Because, as I said, I read Spider-Man from the very early days and through many decades. Uh, never quite felt the same after Ditko left, but I liked Ramita's work as well. You know, I carried on reading it after that. So, yes, I was probably drawn to that more than the Doctor Strange material. Is there any of his work that you haven't read yet that you do want to read and check out? No, not really. I've read everything because during the preparation of the book, I read lots of things at the time and the things that I didn't read at the time I read in compilations or hardcover editions, paperbacks, or within the comics themselves. Pretty much I've read everything. So what is next for you after this book comes out, Ditko Shrugged? I've got to finish the Bowie one first. I feel that I've wrapped up a lot of things that... Um, have connectivity to my life in terms of comic books and music. I'd like to try my hand at fiction for the first time. I'll be working on a series of books called Miracle Fields, but uh, I don't know much more other than the title at the moment. So the name of the book is Ditko Shrugged, The Uncompromising Life of the Artist-Creator Behind Spider-Man and the Rise of Marvel Comics, coming out in November through Hermes Press. David Curry, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you, Christopher. It's been a pleasure. All right, and I'm looking forward to reading that book about Steve Ditko's correspondence with David Curry. You know, I've been so busy as of late, I don't have time to have a lot of guests on who are doing Kickstarters. But I did want to give a mention of Nandor Fox Schaefer's Kickstarter currently running for Seasons 2. He was on my podcast back on December 20th of 2018. And I just wanted to let you know that the second volume of his season's book, Summer, it's the direct sequel to the 2018 indie comic hit Seasons Volume 1, Spring, by Nander Fox Schaefer and Anthony Gonzalez Clark, featuring over 120 pages of beautifully striking black and white artwork and an emotional, complex, character-driven storyline set in real time. The Kickstarter runs until October 31st. Support it if you can. Okay, so then what's coming up in October? What I already have in the can, as they say, are two more interviews. One that is based on a Star Trek television series, and the other is my Halloween special that'll be out on the Thursday before Halloween. I speak with a comic book artist who has done work for Marvel and DC back in the 80s and 90s, left the business, and later did some of their own comics, this person has a graphic novel forthcoming in black and white based on a classic horror novel featuring a classic horror film actor who was featured in a classic Universal monster movie. Plus, we talk about other monster movies, a horror show host, and how we both used to celebrate Halloween. Creator Talks is available in all podcast catchers. The show is ubiquitous. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe. And if you want to find out who will be coming up, please follow me on social media at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. To contact me directly, you may email me at creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. 
And if you have not yet, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or tell a friend about the show. It helps grow the show's audience so I can bring you more great interviews with comic book creators. Please be kind to one another. Enjoy your comic books that you're reading, both new and those you're digging out of your back issue boxes to enjoy again and again. I know when it comes to entertainment, you have a lot of choices. And I thank you for taking the time to listen to this interview with David Curry. I'll be back in two weeks and every other Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Thank you.